Hello and welcome to The Thing About Golf, the podcast series from Golf Australia magazine that attempts to answer that nagging question we all find it difficult to explain to our non-golf friends, just what is it that draws us to this silly game? My name's Rod Murray, and I act as a sort of a tour guide on these explorations into the minds of golfers, be they players, caddies, administrators, or involved in the game in some other way. On episode 17, we're going to meet one of my favourite people in golf, and one whose voice I believe will come to be considered among the most important of this generation. Almost everybody listening to this podcast will be aware of Mike Clayton in some capacity, be it as player, commentator, or course architect. My hope is that no matter how well you think you know him, you'll come away from today's conversation feeling like you know him just a little bit better. We'll come to Mike in just a moment, but as always, there's some administration to deal with, starting with our back catalogue. Now, I perused the download numbers recently, and it is fabulous to see that many of you seem to be discovering our past shows. If this is your first visit, I urge you to do the same. There's some nuggets of gold and some valuable golf wisdom to be found in our various interviews. We've had the likes of Bobby, Bob and Kathy Shearer, the two Peters, Senior and Lonard, and the all too often overlooked David McKenzie. For those whose interests stray more towards course architecture, there are chats with Tom Doak and Bob Harrison, and I'll be honest, one of my personal favourites, a wide-ranging discussion with publisher Paul Daly. You can find all of those and more by heading to the podcast page at golfaustralia.com.au. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. Or even better, subscribe to the show on your favourite device and you'll receive the new episodes as soon as they're released without having to do a thing. If you've got some feedback, be it good, bad or indifferent, don't hesitate to get in touch. We've had some excellent guest suggestions as well as some kind words along the way and all of it, I can assure you, is greatly appreciated. Now, I'm sure you didn't come along here to listen to me bang on about web addresses and subscription processes, so let's get on with it. And this episode, I'll be honest, was a bit of an odd one for me personally. As some of you may know, I've co-hosted the State of the Game podcast with Mike Clayton and Jeff Shackelford for the best part of a decade, and Mike has also been a not infrequent guest on other podcasts that I've been involved with. Over the years, I've interviewed him on various topics for stories, touching almost every imaginable facet of the game along the way. I'm an unashamed fan of Mike's writings on and opinions about golf, most of which are pretty well known to anyone with more than a passing interest in the game. And much of it has appeared on the pages of this very magazine over the years. But as I try to do with all people on this show, the goal of this interview was to try to unearth some of the things we don't know about Clayton. And I hope that by the end of this chat, you feel that that's been achieved. So without further ado, here it is, a conversation with Mike Clayton. Well, first things first, Mike Clayton, I suppose we have to say thanks for your time, although I get plenty of your time, so I probably don't appreciate it. Right, nothing better to do in the rain. <laughs> in, in the rain. golf today. Down here in uh, sunny Collingwood in Melbourne. The podcast, as you know, Clayton, is called The Thing About Golf. It might be the biggest question of all, but what's the thing about golf for Mike Clayton? Oh, it was just my life, really. I just started. Remember the first time I went on a golf course? My dad was playing with a friend of his at Point Lonsdale. I must have been six, I reckon, seven. And they teed off, and we sprinted off up the fairway and got the balls and ran back with the balls. And he said, No, that's not the idea. That was my first memory of golf. And then I. Was he a regular golfer? Yeah. He was a member at Green Acres, so not yeah. far from here. And then. 
Um, he took me to watch some tournaments. We went to watch the PGA at Metro in 1968 and he said, there's Peter Thompson, he's the best player here, we'll go and watch him. So I started watching Peter Thompson and then, because um, I thought at that point any pro who had his name on his bag was some sort of god. <laughs> and then we moved to a house behind Eastern in Doncaster, which is now a housing estate, sadly, and I started catting because I wanted some money. My mate and I next door wanted some, so we went up and turned up on Tuesday. Tuesdays to caddy. Best finery, yeah, long socks and shorts and ladies' day, mate, come back tomorrow. <laughs> so we came back the next day and a guy from Sydney hired me for it, gave me a dollar, which was like, it was a fortune. A fortune at the time. Was oh. it common at the time, the caddying thing? Were there caddies at there the time? No, the, we, were, we were the only two there. Right. And we used to caddy every Saturday morning and we had regulars on Saturday morning and Saturday afternoon, so it was kind of what we did. And, and then the assistant pro there was great. He kind of his dad was the superintendent, so he caught me on the course sneaking on one day just after I was doing. You know, I was just just after I, was, I started to play. Mm-hmm. There were some clubs lying around the house, so I grabbed them, and he caught me sneaking onto the course one day. He said, "Don't race, just stay out of the members' road. You'll be fine." <laughs> That's how you grow the game. That's so important, the, isn't it? Rubbish phrase, growing the game. That's how you do it. You know, mm-hmm. Kindly men who look after kids who are sneaking on, and because I was not old enough to be a member, I was only twelve, so you had to be fourteen to join. What was that about? What is that about? Well, I don't know what that was about. Yeah, it's bizarre, isn't it? Mm. What, if you're old enough to pick up a golf club yeah, and swing and hit a couple, yeah, yeah. Because Metro, Metro was sixteen. You couldn't yeah. join that to your sixteen, which mm. was kind of. It's a luxury we can't afford in the modern age, isn't it? As we've seen what's yeah. happened with the golf industry, that's an unthinkable yeah. notion now that you would turn back any sort of membership. Sue, I went to Long Island when she was ten because that was the only place that would take her as a member. Okay. So it was quite away from where she lived, but that was the only place that would let her play as a member. So it's kind of odd, yeah. I mean, especially when you're good enough to play in the Australian Open at 12. <laughs> 12, that's right. <laughs> yeah, in Australia at the Olympics. And yeah. might be an awful lot of clubs wishing they might have made an exception, uh, given how that unfolded. We'll talk about some of that state of the game stuff, which we talk about regularly all the time. But I'm still interested in sort of you. So you went there and started caddying. And was that, you said that was for money, but was there an element of that which was access to the course and the ability to play what was what what was your relationship no, with playing of the game at the time well i only started playing because i was caddying right. and the assistant pro was great in fact he wasn't even the assistant pro then he was about to be he was 16 a guy called mel humphreys who was tremendous and we just well, there were clubs. i just jumped the fence and started to balls so this looks like fun and the course, immediately were you yeah the, yeah and i could always i could kind of hit it all right so and the course was right literally across the back fence so it was just perfect for me so that was that was my childhood done, really. Yeah. Just went to the golf course. You remember the name specifically of Mal Humphreys. I'm curious. Most of us, I think, have a teacher that we remember, an important figure in life in some way from school or – and it sounds yeah. like he, he was that to yeah. you. Yeah, he was, yeah. And he was, and he was like barely older than I was, really. He was mm. just an assistant pro, but he was just kind. I, would, you know, I used to caddy for him and walk around with him. And you know, I thought he was unbelievable. I couldn't believe how good he was because he actually hit the ball properly. and <laughs> Because the guys I caddied for weren't any good. Well, you know what was that like then? So, well, who were you caddying for? The average member, and well, what was the caddying thing like? Was it? Well, Saturday I caddied for a guy called Howard Hamilton in the morning. It was a twenty-five handicap, and a guy called Eddie Jones in the afternoon. Who he introduced me to Bobby Jones. He said, "I'll play my Bobby Jones pitch and run here." The guy was a twenty-seven <laughs> handicap, but he, you know who's Bobby Jones? Oh, he was this great player who won the Grand Slam, and so you know. It's where you learn about golf, you know. And there were magazines in the back of the pro shops. So I was interested in them, and 
you know, I started buying golf magazines and, you know, people would get, get a book for Christmas about golf, so you start reading about because I was interested in the history of it. I, you know, I liked the history. It's the only subject I was any good at at school. So I was always interested in the history of golf. It always amazed me that blokes who had no interest in it at all and lots of pros who I played with had no, no, have, mm-hmm. had and have no interest in it. Mm-hmm. But I thought that was the most interesting part of it, really. I met an elite amateur the other day who'd never heard of Peter Thompson. Yeah, he designs golf courses. Never, well, not even that. Never heard <laughs> yeah, of amazing. Peter Thompson, which is the story. About and, and was unimpressed by five open wins, which is the story about that Ruben Sanjaja who was working for Kathy Shearer at the Australian Open. And we were talking about Bob, and I looked at him. And I said, "You've got no idea who Bob Shearer is, do you?" He said, "No, not a clue." I said, "You know who Peter Thompson is?" He said, he, "Yeah, he designs golf he designs courses. Of course, <laughs> this guy was a semi-finalist in the Australian Amateur. Like, how can you not know who Peter Thompson is? What is that about? Do you think?" It seems like that seems generational it's to me. There's a complete lack of interest. Disinterest. No interest in. Has the game changed as well? Perhaps is is the professional path clearer earlier? Yeah, I mean for players, and so therefore it's a much more self interested game right from the beginning. Yeah, the, a lot more kids want to be pros straight away when they fourteen. You know, we were. I didn't know I was going to be a pro till I was twenty three or four. Really, I was still trying to figure out what I was going to do, and. Colin Phillips, Tom, he was, the, he was the boss of the AGU at the time. He said, I think you should turn pro. So I went, okay, if you think I should turn pro, then okay, I'll give it a try. But, I mean, Grady and Finchie and Peter Senior and Peter Fowler and guys like that, they were, they were going to be pros or were pros. Chuck was a pro. At, Chuck and Finchie were pros at 16. Mm-hmm. Senior, Pete, senior, pretty early too, didn't he, Peter Senior? Yeah, I, I saw yeah. Pete play when he was 13. He was going to be – the first time I saw him play, he was going to be a pro. He was 13 and just smashing it. I mean, so he was just – he was almost a pro at 13 anyway. He just wasn't getting paid to do it. But And grades was the same. But I was much different to them. In what way? You won the Australian Amateur. You could clearly play. Yeah, but a, I didn't. You know, I didn't. They were much more single-mindedly focused on being golf pros from a young age. I wasn't. I just loved golf. And I, I'd have been happy to play amateur golf, really. In fact, you know, if I had my time around, I'm not, no, that's true, I love playing pro golf. But if I had my time again, I would, I would have seriously thought about going working for Claude Crockford and learning about growing grass and shaping and building and doing what I do now, it would have been much more used to being what I'm, what the second half of my career has been in learning how to drive, ride machines and work machines and grow grass and understand drainage and irrigation and shaping and construction. And I, I, I might have thought about doing that, which would have been just as much fun, I think. If you'd done that, would you not think now... Oh, if I'd gone and been a player and played the tour for all those years, that'd be much more useful to me. I mean, sometimes I think, you know, 1975, I wasted it. It was a year after I left school. I started a uni course and quit because I I hated it. What was that in? What what did you Uh, Marketing or something. It was just rubbish. (laughs) Marketing? Yeah. yeah. I could have gone and worked for the PGA Tour. Might as well have done diplomacy (laughs) class. You know, I wish I – I should have gone to Europe and cave for Bob Shearer. I probably could have done that. Did you have that opportunity? Well, I – you know, yeah, not Bob so much, but I know I could have gone. Could if have gone I had back. my time again, I would have jumped on a plane and gone to Europe. And Seve was a kid, you know, and got Katie for Faldo or Seve or someone like that for a year would have been really cool. But that's, you know, we all could have done stuff like that. We're all things we, sure, that would have been a fun thing to do. But And why did you choose the uni? What was the thinking? Do you remember at the Ah, because I went to school and that's what kids did. Because you should. You know, yeah. You know, I should have gone and worked at Ron Bob for Cole Crockford. Wait, was he still there? He probably was. Yeah. You know, no, finishing up what I finished up doing, that would have been much more use. But I finished up going and doing an arts degree at La Trobe and kind of 
it wasn't any use really i don't think but there must but, be some value to being but, but that university. time of my life was important i had a yeah. girlfriend who was great you know we were together for four years she was terrific we kind of grew up together went to uni i was doing stuff and i still had plenty of time to play golf so i think it was an important period of my life to kind of grow up a little bit and get get something some sort of rounded life really that was wasn't just focused on playing golf every day all day because that's what i was about to say you strike me we've had peter senior on the show and peter lonard and we're hoping to get peter fowler to come on at some point and there's a real single-mindedness to all of those from very early in life which has its benefits obviously in terms of golf and the achievements of their careers and all of the fine players who've had magnificent careers but i wonder whether you give something up when that's your whole existence that it feels to me like you've always been somewhat more around. Your interests have always bit. been broader than just yeah, golf. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, probably. I don't, yeah. You read about politics and music. And yeah, well, art. my grandfather was a history teacher. He was interested in that, and my parents were. So there was, yeah, I mean, golf was not, you know, golf was a, yeah, you know, it was something you might do, but it wasn't something I, well, yeah, it wasn't something I was always going to do. So I was always interested in other stuff, I think. Yeah, indeed. Did I hear you say on another podcast, or it might have been a book podcast when you and Charlie Happel released your book, was it last year or the year before? You were talking about some of the books that your mother gave you when you were young and their influence on you. I was with Corey Perkin, yeah. No, yeah. the music books, yeah. I was yeah. fascinated by um, musicians, Schubert and Bach, and those, just because I like, probably because not so much of their music, but just reading about their lives. I just thought their lives were interesting. You know, my grandmother had a piano and kind of, you know, it was classic music in the house a little bit. And my, my grandparents were always playing that stuff. So I was I was interested in history and interested in people's lives and they would just say seemed like that Beethoven and they seemed like they were interesting people and they were easy books to read so I just you know I never I played the flute at school for a couple of years but you know it wasn't like I was particularly musical I just thought their lives were interesting and does all that in your mind in some way always end up coming back to golf is there always a golf element or something that you can apply to golf that you learn from things outside of golf oh, are you wired that I'm way? not sure I don't know not really but. You know, I think when I started playing golf, I started instead of reading about Beethoven, I was reading about Jones, Hogan. Uh huh. So I just think those lives of those people are interesting. No matter what they're interesting, interesting people are interesting people who do amazing things. Are you know, what were their lives like? Yeah. You won the Australian Amateur in 1978. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to say. Yeah. Tell us about the sort of the lead up to that, as in how you got to the point where you're good enough to be playing in the amateur, and then won it. And what you remember about that week? We all know that you did it, but I'm not sure many of us know many of the details. It was match play, of course, so it's immediately interesting. It was match play, so we it was the old Royal Queensland with the old clubhouse and the old course. I got in trouble for throwing clubs in the interstate series the week before. You had a temper, didn't you? I did. Yeah, I was terrible. Course. I was, you know, I carry for Sue now, and I can you know, the Elvis and Blake Collier and Lucas, and you know. The four kids I've carried for the last year. I'm embarrassed the way I behave <laughs> when I look at the way they handle stuff. You know, I mean, Sue's like, makes me look, I feel like, God, I was such an idiot the way I carried on. <laughs> so, anyway, we, it was a long, the Interstate Series and the Amateur, same course over two weeks. So, we played, so when Grades was, I think Grades, you know, Grades had turned pro, but Peter Senior was there. Ozzie Moore, you know, um, John Kelly, Peter Sweeney. So, we were all kind of, Golf nerds, golf tragic. So we played 18 practice. At, so the week went 18 practice, 18 practice, 36-hole matches. So two matches on the first day, mm-hmm. one match on the Saturday, two matches on the Sunday. So Monday was a day off. So what did we do? We played golf. Played golf. Well, Queensland. Tuesday was the Australian foursome, 36 holes. Wednesday was the first round of the qualifying. Thursday was the second round of the qualifying. 
and then Friday, Saturday, Sunday, if you make the – with, with 36 holes a day. So we play I – mean, it's a <laughs> – yeah, Tiger Woods <laughs> don't play that much golf in no, six no. weeks. <laughs> so it was a long week. And I got – I remember I was practicing on the range. I'd just qualified. It was really windy. And I was hitting balls next to Ian Hood, a friend of mine from Sydney. And the draw came out. I looked at the draw and said, God, Hoodie, this draw's a joke. I'm gonna, I can win this thing here now. Because every good – almost literally every good player was in the other half of the draw. Mm. Gresham, Sweeney, Phil Wood, Colin Kay, Senior, Chris Benithan, maybe. They were all on the other side, of the, and they all just knocked each other out. And I played Doug Perry, who was a good player from Victoria. I, he three-putted 17. I had a fluky shot through the trees on the last hole on the green. Um, and maybe he three-putted 18. He, he three-putted either what, 17 or 18. And I beat him one up, but I should have lost. And then I... Played Glenn Coggle, who was in the Queensland junior team with Greg Norman. He was kind of Norman's. He was a couple years older than me, and I beat him. Then I played Bob Stevens, who was in the winning Eisenhower Cup team. And then I played Elliot Booth, who was a good player. He was he won the medal, semi-finals, really good player. There was no chops at that level. Yeah. Yet, but. And then I played Gresham in the final, who was the best player and should have won mm-hmm. a bunch of amateurs and didn't. He lost to Sweeney, Ray, Ray Jenner, Peter Sweeney and me, three Victorians in. 73, 76, and 78, who, who had no right beating him, really. Mm-hmm. We had blinders and we all beat him, which was bizarre. So I beat him one up. But I was four down after nine and playing. I thought I was playing pretty well. He'd played, I think I was one under and four down. Wow. And he knocked it on the old 10th green at Royal Queensland, undulating double-tiered green, tiny green. He knocked it on the green on the front and three-putted it. And I won that hole and won the next four holes. And it's like, wow, I'm in this match now. So I was, you know, and, that, and then I fluked it on 16. I hit it over the green at the 16. I think I, I hit, it, hit the downside. I hit a golf cart and bounced under a bush. I was like almost completely dead. I walked in there with an eight, grabbed an eight iron, smashed it into the bank, hit the bank perfectly, just jumped up, trickled down to like three feet. It was like a ridiculous shot. <laughs> Heartbreaking for him yeah, yeah. to watch. Yeah. You can't help but think, I know everyone says, yeah, it's not over till it's over. You always got to count on your opponent doing something, but you look at that and yeah, you think, there's great. no way, do you? Yeah. And then he missed a. Shortish birdie putt on 17, maybe four or five feet. So you, you're claiming to be the Stephen Bradbury of the Australian yeah. amateur? Oh, no, it was a good you know, <laughs> play. Well, yeah. you know, Gresh was a good mm. player. I mean, he was Mark McNulty, really. If he turned mm. pro, he'd have been Mark McNulty. Yeah. Oh, that was yeah, the same game, and he was a good player. Yeah. Really good. Yeah, one, one professional so it was, tournament. It was kind of a amateur. measure of your progress. That, that was why amateur golf and match play was good, was that beating guys that was a measure of your progress really because he'd won, he won professional tournaments Tony yeah he won the, two South, I think the South Australian he won the South Australian Open and the New South, New South Wales, Wales Open. Open I think he was there he might have even been in the New South Wales Open no he won the New South Wales Open the year before that but mm-hmm. yeah, he was good he was a proper player and when that happened was that an immediate signal as it seems to be these days that you're now ready that there's nothing left to do that you turn professional you sort of seem to suggest that it wasn't oh no I thought it was 1970 I didn't turn pro really. and I didn't turn pro for three more years three more that. years so what I'm do you still, do when you're the Australian Well, I was still at uni. I was still going to university. I did that. I um, I made the Australian team in 1980. So I had a free year. I was, I'd, let, I'd finished uni and I was working in a – where was I working? I don't remember. Um, I was working for a friend of mine, John Main, who had a shoe factory in, near here somewhere. So I was working for him and I, I was in the t- Australian team. So that, that paid my way to get to Europe and we – Gresham beat me in the fi- in the in the second round of the French amateur, and I caddied for him in the final where he beat John Kelly. Roger McKay was on that team, and then we 
I, I, Roger and I stayed. Roger, I, I don't know what Roger did. He disappeared and, into Europe. So probably went to the Greek islands and landed on the beach. <laughs> but anyway, I mainly had given me some money, gave me $500 or something. So I had a bit left. So I stayed and played. I played the qualifying for the British Open. I had a par the last to get in the open at Muirfield, duffed the wedge on the front, putted up four feet short, marked it one putt length across because my coin was, I was playing with Peter Cowan and Paul Hode. My, and then forgot to put it, forgot to put it back, and then missed the putt. But that was a two shot. So I missed. I finished up missing by three. But it was like a horrible joke. Stood on the front of the green, one yeah. shot out of it, and uh... one shot. Yeah, it was a two putt to make the British Open. I was yeah. like, wow, this is a big deal. Which would have been, you know, I was not good enough to play the Open at that point. I'd just gone there and missed the cut. But um, so I walked around. I remember walking around with Peter Thompson. It was the I think it was the first Open he hadn't played. He, his last Open was 1979 at Lytham. You would have known him at this stage. Yeah, and I remember I played with him in the Vic Open in 1977. And we walked around watching Greg in the first round, playing with Andy Bean and someone else. Um, so Thompson was always, you know, he was always interested in, you know, he was Peter Thompson walking around watching Greg Norman play the Open. And he walked around for, a, you know, a couple of hours watching him play. Does Greg Norman follow anybody around at yeah, the Open? I'm sure he doesn't. But anyway. Um, I don't mean that as a slight. No, no. The, the world's changed a lot, hasn't it? So, that, so then I, I don't know how, somehow I, Entered the Dutch Open, so I went, to, I went to the Dutch Open the next week. I was exempt because I was an amateur or something, and I made the cut. So you go to the first tee on Saturday if you made the cut in the European Tour event. And there's a there was a bit of paper that said, "Do you want to play next week? Yes or no?" Because if you made the cut, you're exempt into the Except following the week. That's right. Yeah. So, okay. Yes. Yeah. So the next week was the Benson and Hedges in Fulford, which was a big tournament. So I played the weekend out. Played pretty well. Finished twentieth or something. You didn't have to turn pro to take no, the spot. No. You just had to make the cut. So I just somehow got to the ferry in Rotterdam and got in the ferry and went across to Hull and I don't know how I got to Fulford, but I got there somehow. Got a bus or a train or something and with my suitcase and my golf bag. And, you know, I think, how did I ever do that? You know, if my parents had known what I was doing, well, you, you're all right, you okay? No Skype, no so Google, no, yeah, Airbnb, nothing. So I, no, yeah, no money. No money. Got to the Benson Head, just played with Manuel Calero, who was a good player, missed the cut, watched Roberto Di Vicenzo play with Roger Davis on the weekend. And I met a girl in Holland at the Dutch Open, so I'm going back there. So I went back, <laughs> I went back to stay with her, who lived at, she lived in the Hague, and the Dutch amateur was on that week. And I don't know how I got in. I just sort of turned up. Can I play? Yeah, you can play. So I won the Dutch amateur at the Hague. Not a big deal. Not many good players there, but beautiful course. Mm-hmm. Love that. I've gone back there a lot since. But Totally underrated yeah, part of the golf course. Really good yeah. golf course, yeah. So I won that. And then I had to come back because the state team was – practicing and they said you better come back and i didn't i, didn't, I was very happy to stay in, <laughs> i was very happy to stay in holland for another month or so but so we came back played the amateur um didn't play any good played the australian open played the australian open the lakes played made the cut played all right that was the first time i made the cut in the open played the bob charles and Eamon darcy and played well there next year i Worked in a factory putting grips on putters. Worked with Paul Daly. I think it was Paul. Who was Paul Daly? Paul Daly, the yep. Dr. Sarkis. Sure was, yeah. Running. Sure we worked. Been on the podcast as well. Worked for Jeff Souden, who was a – he'd won the Riversdale Cup. He, had a, he was running a little golf business. I, and then I went to the tour school. So I fumbled my way through a few years, really. Yeah. You know, I could have used them more productively. But anyway, that was what I did. And Do you regret any of that, looking back? No, I think it was good. I was growing up. You know, it's kind of the important thing, isn't it? Learning to travel and yeah, yeah. you know, traveling is 
you know, learn, looking back, it was an amazing way to learn how to travel. You had to be entirely self-sufficient and figure out how to get somewhere with no money and sleep on the ferry at night and find somewhere to stay and, you know, work out practice rounds and be around good players and, you know, just it was fun. I enjoyed it. Yeah. Tell me, well, first things first, were you the first amateur to win with the big ball? Yep. I was the only guy in the field using a big ball. Tell yep. us about that and what the response to that was. Well, I don't think there was any response except that I didn't tell anyone I was using it. But I earlier that year, I th- yeah, earlier that year, I'd figured if I was going to be a golf pro, I was going to have to learn to play with a big ball. So I just I never hit another small ball again. Mm-hmm. Just threw them all out. And, and did you quit the game? Because uh, I lost twenty five yards. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, no. In fact, you know the the best thing that happened to golf in the world was being forced to play with the big ball because you know, the Open was 74. The first big ball Open was 74. Within five years, Seve had won the Open and that great European generation emerged. Now, I don't think that ever would have happened if they'd, start, if they'd kept playing with a small ball because they never would have been able to go to America and compete and change balls and go back and forward and it was crazy what was going on. It was easier if you were used to the big ball to go to the small ball, wasn't it? So, so Nicholas would go across to the Open and switch to the small ball and it would be, you just hit it, it further. It was easier to play with. It went further yeah. and it was easier using the yeah. wind and, yeah, it was it was so you could adapt to that yeah. much more easily than you could adapt yeah, to you know, growing up with the guys who you know Billy Duncan guys of that who Billy hated the big ball he played well with it but you know, he would played his whole life with a small ball and then at you know his mid thirties or you know, he was now you have to change balls Billy so like, oh, wow this is a you know so he was a great small ball player and he turned into a terrific big ball player but you know it was a big change mm. yeah well <laughs> especially got the only ball that. You know, I was using a hot dot in a top flight, so a hard sirloin ball. But then the first ballada balls that came out here were just pro-trage tightless, which were built to play in America with no wind and hit the ball high. And, you know, we're playing wind in Australia and Britain, and you're playing a ball that's not designed for the wind at all. So they made a thing called the low-trage ball, which was their first attempt at making a ball that was better in the wind. And then DDH came out with that. Dunlop came with that DDH ball, which is a great ball. So Titus got better at making balls that worked in the wind. Yeah. It's always been a crucial part of the professional game in particular, hasn't it, equipment and how it performs and all those sorts of, obviously, because that's what you're doing for a living. Yeah. But not as big a thing as it seems to be now, maybe. Well, you're just trying to find a good driver yeah. and a good three-wood. And, a, you know, everyone had a ping one-iron, not everyone, but most guys had a ping one-iron because they were a, rev- a revolution, really. So that was a game changer. What were the game changes that you, you can recall? Ping one-iron. yeah. Um, the DDH ball, um, and nothing until the Roger Cleveland turned up with some beautiful wedges. I mean, the wedges we used were awful. Looking back, they're horrible looking mm-hmm. things. I remember seeing my first Cleveland wedges at Slaley Hall, which is a not the best course in England by a long stretch. But um, yeah, with, with these Cleveland wedges, wow, these things are amazing. So I thought they were, and, and every wedge now is a copy of what he did. It's a bit like the, the ping answer, like Scotty isn't it? Scotty Cameron's putters. I mean, you know, Roger Cleveland and Carsten Solheim were the geniuses. And then, the you know, I, I hated Metal Woods. I used that little tailor-made wood. I hated it. I thought it was just a horrible club. You know, I was used to hitting the ball on the toe or the heel of a wooden driver and have it come back. Mm-hmm. Uh, use this metal. I remember playing with Curtis Strange at the Palm Meadows Cup when I got in the first hole. And the, you could play the first hole down the, the left-hand fairway. I don't know what hole it was. And I aimed it down the fairway, and this thing came out straight left and went right down the middle of this other fairway. And he thought I'd aimed it there. <laughs> I was like, I had these shots that were just 
if you hit it in the toe, it just went straight right in. It was went straight. The horrible clubs. So I went back to using Woods for. I was kind of one of the later guys to change from. So then you know the, the great big Bertha came out, and that was kind of the game to start the, the metal. You look at it now; it's ridiculously small, given yeah. the stupid things we play with now. But the five wood. So you know nothing revolution, nothing game changing happened. I suppose well, I used pink the ping I two irons. Yeah. They were a huge change. I played with those for four. They, they were great clubs. I thought. But nothing really changed until the modern frying pan, really. And what about players? You've already mentioned a bunch of names of the guys whose era you sort of played. And we forget that you played at all those, you know, you just casually mentioned you played with two-time US Open champ Curtis Strange at yeah. Well, of course you did. You were <laughs> one of the premier players here in Australia every season and one of Europe's consistent performers as well. So who were your favourite guys to play with and who do we – who were who we uh, – who are the characters on the European tour? Wow. You know, I played a lot with my friend. I mean, you know, the guys we hung around with were Frank Nobolo, Turner, Peter Fowler, Peter Senior, you know, grades. Senior said there was a Finchie. was a place in London where you yeah, all had a, in this little estate in Bagshot. You guys would go to the continent and play them when you came back. Yeah. One week it was your yeah. turn and one yeah. week it was somebody exactly. else's. And-, and Chuck had the biggest house, so we all went there. <laughs> yeah. Um, watched Chuck's daughters grow up. <laughs> one of them turned into a supermodel. A legitimate yeah. supermodel. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, so... But John, you know, the South Africans were good. Blandy and mm-hmm. David Frost when he was there and Chris Moody, English guy who was um, – I played a lot with Moods. And, but it was the era of Seve. You know, we were all in awe of him. Everyone loved Seve and we loved watching him play. And, and what was he like as a, when you were a fellow player? I thought he was great. He was tremendous. He, he would, you Did know, you spend much time with him? Yeah, Did you get to talk yeah, to him much? a little much, bit, or? yeah. You know, I remember – you know, getting a ride, getting a ride back to an airport in a courtesy car with him, and it was great to talk about golf. And you know, I asked him. I remember asking him what the best shot he ever hit was, and he said it was the chip at Litham, which was the '88 Open. Where he missed that green left and had that. Didn't look like that difficult. You know, it's heavy. Of course, he's going to get up and down. But you know, he walked up there and he played it so quickly and boof, you know, lipped it out. And I said, "What about that three wood at the Ryder Cup?" He said. He said that was for the team. He said the shot at Litham was for me. <laughs> you know? So, um, yeah, Seve was it was great to talk with about golf. He was smart. I remember he hadn't played that well in the 85 Open and he came into the players' land and we were watching on TV and I was sitting next to him and he was kind of commentating on Sandy Lyle, playing in the back nine really. And it was amazing to see how his insight into what was happening because he'd obviously been, I'd never been there and never good enough to be there. But, you know, he'd, well, he was the, defend- the defending champion, so it was interesting to see his insights from what was really going on. And you know, someone missed a putt somewhere on the seventh hole. He said his his chance is gone. You know, that's his chance gone. He's right. done. You know, are they different? Pa- those players? Were they different from? Are, are they different? Is have they got some special gift, some magical? Secret? No, yeah, they're just better. Like, why is Roger Federer better? They're just better. They're the ball better. But that insight of knowing his chance has gone. Well, yeah, but but I think they learn that because they're in that all the time. Uh They're so used to it. Seve was just so they recognise moments. Yeah, maybe we don't. Yeah, because they're in it all the time. So you know, so they've been through it and lost. I mean, Seve, you know, eighty three, he three putted a green at Oakmont some early on, and you know that was he said that was was him done. I was done. Did he play with it? Did he essentially play that tournament with a one iron? Yeah, pretty much. Remember? Yeah, you never he hit played, a drive. It was a US Open. Yeah, he, he played with Watson in the last round. He was right there. Hit one yeah. iron off every tee. Yeah, he played beautifully. So they said he couldn't win the US Open, didn't they? Which would have rankled him, no doubt. Yeah, but they, the Americans never understood Sebi. They didn't get him. You know, and, you know, if you go to Spain and you understand what how the Spaniards eat, and mm. you go to dinner at 
eight thirty or nine o'clock and it takes four hours. I've been to restaurants in Spain where the people are walking in at midnight. It's a complete opposite of eating in America. Well, not, I don't want to generalise about America, but it's in, get out, and in quick and get out again. And no matter where you are, yeah. have the same thing. Of you're in at six thirty, and you go to a chain restaurant, and you're out at seven fifteen. It's like get it, get it over. You know, so I can see Seve going to America and just what is this? Yeah, it's not. I mean, I think it's. I think the culture, the eating, the food culture in Spain is clearly better than America, from my experience. But he would just go there and go, "What is this? I mean, why are people going to dinner at six thirty and they're back in the room by seven thirty? I mean, he was going out at eight thirty and coming back at eleven thirty because food was something to savor and it took time and it was a well, it's an event, isn't it? It's yeah, a, it was an it's event. A, it's, a, it's a social gathering and the food's just a you know, it's a famous story about Huggy and getting invited to dinner by David Duval, mate. Duval and O'Meara. No, I didn't know this one. Because Huggy was O'Meara's ghostwriter. Yes, that's we right. We were playing yeah. the Lancam. Huggy, we're going to dinner in Paris. Come to Paris with us for dinner. So they jumped into a van and they go to the Champs-Élysées and they get out of the Champs-Élysées. Where do they go in the, the Burger King? Oh, no. And Huggy said, are you guys kidding? <laughs> so it's great. I mean, so it's great, isn't it? It's like, okay. really? Dear idea. So anyway. Royale with cheese. But Seve was great. <laughs> and he was such a beautiful, amazing player to watch. I mean, just I mean, Greg Turner and I watching him play in Madrid. Did others go out? I know you've told me that. No, You and really. Greg used to go out not and follow. Not so much. You know, watch him on the range, obviously. Yeah. But the players go, well, not really. You know, I wish I'd done it more. I did it. I wish I'd done it more. Because you know, every time you watched him, you, you you always remember shots that he hit, and he just hit shots that others didn't. But he was such a charismatic. You know, if he walked into a, if Seve came back and walked into a pub across the street there, everyone would look at him, even if they didn't know who he was. Yeah. He was just, who's that guy? You know, he has it. Yeah. Whatever it whatever, is, whatever it is, he was it. Remember, Lee's a bit like that. I think so too. He's a bit like I agree. That. He's yeah. got it. His sister doesn't have it at all, but no. he does. It's weird how. Yeah. And Manuel, his brother, never had it. Really, Manuel was just another player on the two. He was a nice player, but Seve was just a different cat. Yeah. You know, he was, Curtis Luck's got a bit of it. A little bit too, yeah. I reckon. And yeah. Ironically, Adam Scott doesn't. He's got almost none of it. I yeah. Think. He's just fantastic bloke. Yeah. Couldn't find a better ad no. for the game or yeah. a better diplomat. Yeah. He doesn't have. Yeah. Norman had it. Yeah. Did he always have it, Norman? Yeah. Greg always had it. Yeah. There was a picture I saw on Twitter the other day of Rivero, Canizares, Pinero, and Seve, the four of them. And I thought if you took that picture to the middle of China to someone who'd never heard of it, what even golf was, and said, who's the star? They would all pick that guy. They would all pick that guy. Every single – not one person would go, one of the other three guys. No, it was, it was oh, he's the star. That guy's clearly the star. And it was just a picture of four guys standing there. Yeah. But you could pick who the star was. Yeah, and Greg was like that. Same thing. I remember sitting with Trevor Hurden at Royal Queensland, the old course, and Greg's group was coming down the 12th fairway. And I said, yeah, same thing. I said, if you put a 1,000 Chinese here who didn't know what golf was and sat him here all day and said, there's one guy who's a star here, you have to pick him out, they would have all picked that guy. One shot. One shot. He's that. No, there's that guy. Not even hitting a shot. You see him walking down the field. Oh, that's the that's guy. Him. Yeah, he's the one. Is it just confidence? But what is that? I don't know. I don't know what it is. Presence. Because it's, it's real, isn't but it? But do, do they have you the feel. you know? Do, do they have the presence because of what they are? As well, players? this is the or, question. Isn't or, it? Or, or would Greg have had it anyway? You know, if Greg had been a mining engineer like his dad, would he have had that? I think he probably would have. Yeah, or a know? pilot, or yeah. And Seve would have still had the Seve. Just had whatever, whatever, because mm. charisma is a really rare thing. Yeah. People talk about charisma like it, you know, every every, every bloke in the, you know, there's, there's one bloke in the pub with charisma. And I, I've seen Seve had it. Seve is the only person I've seen who really had it. 
I think. Like a gift. Yeah. Born with it. Just, just it doesn't develop itself. Incredible, yeah. It's born with it. What do you remember about when – when you think about those times, what do you remember? Do you remember the golf, the tournaments, the shots, the results? Of playing in Europe? Yeah. You, what, how long were you in Europe? 20-something years? 15 years. 15 yeah. years. That's a big chunk of your life. Yeah, it was. I remember the, um, the courses I liked. Just being around the tour, and the tour was fun. You know, it's mm. a bit like you don't really have to – part of the problem with the tour is you don't have to grow up, really. It's a bit like going to school. It's just a glorified version of school. You're with your friends and you – And there's someone to take know, care of you, someone isn't to take there? care of you. And you, you have holidays and, you, you know, you have weeks where you, you play and you – except it's more fun because you, you don't have to. You don't have to go if you don't want to. You don't have to go and practice. You don't have to go and play a practice round and – Every night you're in a restaurant in a really cool city, and you're with your friends and your wives, and it's you know it's a and you're in Europe, so it's a beautiful place to be, and so it was a lot of fun. And you could, you know, I look back and think, you know, we th- we thought we were playing for some pretty decent money, but it was laughable given what they play for now. And no one, no one aside from the real stars really made any money. I mean, I was with I was talking, I did it with Roger Chapman a couple of months ago in London, and we were talking about, it and he said, you know, I said, do you make any money? He said, no, I never really made any money, not any sort of real money. You made enough to pay your mortgage and you had a job. You had a job, yeah. You had a job. It was a job, yeah. It was a decent job. Yeah, but Better it wasn't bus driving. But but it wasn't something that when you were finished with it, you were done. You had to go and figure out what else you were going to do, and whether that was the senior tour or teaching, or you got out of golf altogether and sold real estate, or you became Pete Cowan and became the best teacher in the world. Or did you play with him? Was he yeah, a player? Yeah, yeah. Pete was yeah. good, mm-hmm. but he was a frustrated player. You could see he was frustrated, angry at because he knew. He didn't. I, I think he knew that if he if he if you were talking to him about it, I think he would say, "I knew my technique wasn't good enough to be the player I wanted to be, and I couldn't figure out why it wasn't." So when he stopped playing, he figured he went to learn. You know, how do you teach these guys not to go through the frustration that I went through? And, and a lot of us were like that because there wasn't much teaching then. And we, you know, kids grew up now with their phone. You can see your swing from. Well, I first saw my swing when I was got a track man on it, Clates. It's not just a video. Yeah. It tells you what the club yeah. face is doing yeah. at impact. So we had no idea what we did. I had no idea what my swing looked like. I didn't have a clue. When I first saw it, I thought, well, that's no good. But I didn't know how to fix it. So... Does every player think their swing's no good? When they no. see it? No. I'm, no. Well, the Peter Thompson told me that. He said, I saw my swing once mm-hmm. on TV. I thought I, said, I thought I swung like Sam, Sam Snead. <laughs> and I saw my swing on TV and I thought I, I'd never looked at it again. And there's a guy like Peter, really? Really? I mean, you go back and look at Tomo's swings. I mean, you, could, could every, you swing it any better than he did? Every three months it bobs up on Twitter and it gets a 1,000 yeah. retweets yeah. and likes yeah. and people are like, this he, is amazing. I'm going to put this on loop yeah, and watch it for swing, hours on end. Yeah. It's an amazing golf so, swing. Yeah. So, so was yours as bad as you thought it was? Yeah, my, did, yeah, it was. But it worked, I think. But it didn't work as well as I, it needed to to be a better player than I was. And, you know, if I... If I'd grown up in a different era, I'd have grown up with a different swing and a better swing because I would have had it sort. You know, I would have seen what I was doing at twelve or thirteen when I was forming it, and you, and you, there would have been a teacher who said, "You shaft vertically, you do that. You need to get it more here, and you, know, you can clear that up in a week if you're twelve years old." It dangerous with that also. Somebody might have done that to Dustin Johnson too. Fixed his left wrist. Yeah, they, well, that's that, that's good. Yeah, there I, are dangers too. Absolutely. I can't remember who said it, but they said someone might have fixed his left wrist and he'd be winning. He'd be running second in club championships yeah. somewhere in California. Yeah, yeah that's exactly right. There is a danger to that. Mm. You've got to know what you're messing with. And you've got to get with a good teacher. And so, yeah. then what's the key to golf clubs? Those of us who are no good at playing, I think I certainly often think I listen to pros talk, and I feel like golf pros put too much importance on the physical. If I could just hit that, 
then I could win. When you watch the game from the outside, it's rarely the golf swing that wins. You have to have a certain level of proficiency, obviously. But there are players who don't hit the ball as well as Tiger Woods, who've won tournaments and beaten Tiger in tournament, not beaten him head-to-head. There's something else, isn't there, about being successful at golf, which hasn't got anything to do with the swing. It's a given. You've got to be able to hit the ball, obviously, but But, it takes more than that. But it's a myth that all pros hit the ball the same. I mean, clearly Tiger hits the ball better than anyone else, and Jack hit the ball better than... Statistically, Yeah, they're better. They're high up in their greens and regulation and all that stuff. Um, You know, I watched MB Park win in Adelaide the other day, and... She looks very ordinary, ordinary-looking swing. Mm-hmm. She hits ordinary shots on the. Someone should have fixed her years ago. Yeah, they, they should have fixed that swing. The shaft's yeah. too vertical, and yeah. you, you don't look at the ball when you hit it. And, yeah. But she moves her body beautifully, and but and on the ordinary holes at Royal Adelaide, or the holes that you could hit ordinary shots on, like the first hole, you can hit two very ordinary shots on the first hole and make a four. In fact, you hold a wedge on the first hole of the tournament, which is belies it. But you know, <laughs> she just she hit up the fairway with not a very impressive-looking ball flight, but it went straight and. Hit it on the green, happened to go on the hole, but she got in the second hole and just hit, a, hit it up the fairway, and hit up the fairway, and hit it on the green, and two putted, and got in the third, and hit it down there, and hit it on. And, yeah. But then she got in the sixth end of the wind, and drive a three would right in the middle of the green. And she got in the twelfth end of the wind, down the hill, upturned green, small, hard to hit, middle of the green both days. Fourteen, the hardest part four on the course, round the corner with the drive, right in the middle of the green both days. Sixteen, that tiny upturned green, middle of the green both days. So you watch that and you go, the four holes where she had to hit proper shots, she, eight for eight she was the first two days. She probably picked up four shots in the field there. But probably what she, what she won the tournament by. So you could argue she won that tournament on those four holes in the first two days by playing them perfectly. And did she know she was doing that? Has she looked well, at the course and realised these so, are the key holes? Is no, I, I'm not sure. Well, I think instinctively, instinctively she thought, these are hard holes, I've got to hit a good shot here. Okay. I've, got to, I've got to do more than just my ordinary shot here. And she did. And she, you know... And she and the, and it goes to Hank Haney's don't three putt, don't double chip, don't take penalty strokes. And Haney's you know formula with O'Meara was he said O'Meara was just an ordinary tour player, and he wasn't clear that, that's the wrong word. But Mark, there were lots of guys who played golf like Mark O'Meara on the US tour, Bruce Litsky and John Cook and Hal Sutton, and you know they all did the same. They were all very good players. So O'Meara won twenty times, whatever two majors. We worked out he couldn't win. If he three-putted, he double-chipped, or he took penalty strokes, he couldn't. He wasn't that much better than everyone else that he could win because someone that in the field that week would be not doing those things, and that would be very hard to beat. He said Tiger could do all that stuff and win because he was so much better than everyone else. And, of course, O'Meara won tournaments where he three-putted and hit the ball in the water maybe or played at a bunker shot, whatever. But as a mindset that, you know, to approach a tournament. For, for, for ordinary players who aren't superstars – if you could go a week without three-putting, double-chipping and taking a penalty stroke, you'd be pretty high up in the field. So you can do all the stats you like, all the you know, proximity to the hole, and whatever. I keep, I keep telling Sue, every week, how many three-putts, how many double-chips, how many penalty strokes? And you can bet the smaller the number, the better you're going to finish. You know, So she misses the cut in the Australian Open by a shot, hits it left on the... 12th hole and takes five to get down. Had a bad lie, but bladed it, duffed it, chipped it on, missed it. Um, bladed it out of the bunker on six. Bad lie at 16, bladed it, made a triple and a double the first day, missed a cut by a shot. You know, there you go. Take those out. And- Take that out. NB three putted the seventh hole the first round, hit an iron shot way left, putted across the green, 65 feet, three putted it. 
drove in the bunker at 18 the same day, bogeyed that. But that's fine. That's not an error. That's just driving the bunker, hit it out, hit it on bogey. You're going to make bogeys. You can make bogeys in winter tournaments, mm-hmm. but you don't make frivolous bogeys, which is what Haney's talking about. The second day, four birdies, no bogeys. And the weekend was pretty much the same. Clean golf, isn't it? It's yeah, clinical, clean, clever. neat. Yeah. So if you want to, you know, you, I'd never watched Jimmy play before. I'd watched her hit shots and seen her play, but I'd never really watched her play. That's why she's won all that, because she just doesn't make mistakes. Or she minimises it down. So, that, yeah, so that's, you know, would she beat Mickey Wright in a fair-up fight? Not, not a chance, you would think. She's not Mickey Wright. Beautiful swing, flushes it, you know, or, you know, how does... How does something wins. How does she beat Nellie Corder or something Park or... Who are Anne Mickey Van Wright, Dan? aren't they? Yeah, they how, how does right. Inby Park beat Anne Van Dam like a drum everywhere they play? Shouldn't it be possible, but... No. She she's, not, she's not making the same mistakes. You've won golf tournaments. What's it like? What what are you playing? What what are the things that go through your mind? What is it like those last? Are you thinking about the golf swing? Do you stand and think I don't have that shot? How can I play around that? What 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 are the things that happen when you win a golf tournament? Because they're not easy at any level ever. No, you hit a, you hit one shot at some point that kind of you know. If I look at all the tournaments I won, I thick open. I made five birdies in a row in the first round and got into the tournament early on and. Wasn't worried about making the cut, and then I made a hole in one the third day, and then I didn't think I had a chance. To, the last day, I didn't think I had a chance to win. Trevino and Norman and Graham Marshall were sheer ahead of me. I'm not never going to beat those guys. And I went out in 34, Metro three under, and I thought I can shoot 40 on the back nine, and that's 74. That's not a bad score for me. I'd made 20 grand the day before and make a hole in one, so I was like, "Geez, I can make another two or three thousand. It'll be good." <laughs> well, I wasn't. You know, I was thinking about. I thought. I can shoot 40 on the back nine, which is five over, and that'll still be that, – that's not a bad round. You know, I was a bit nervous, and, and I fumbled my way through and shot 68. I made played it one under, won the tournament. I thought, what, how did that happen? How did that happen? And then, you know, they're all different, really. Mm-hmm. But um, That's a truly bizarre thing to be thinking about. Mm. <laughs> For the player that goes on to win the – with nine holes to go, you were thinking, geez, I could shoot five over here and still get paid a decent amount. But I had to change balls on the 10th tee. <laughs> Because I teed off with a hot dog because I had a deal with Spalding. I'd played with David Graham and the Australian Open the year before. And I'd played with my first time, I'd played well. I finished ninth in the Australian Open with a triple bogey at the 16th of Victoria, par three. And that was a fortune, $3,000 was a fortune. And I played with David Graham the third day. He was the US Open champion. I played with a hot dog. He said, in the scores, he said, if you want to be a good player, you're going to have to change the ball you're using. Okay, it's good enough for me. So the Vic Open, the boss was, was a lovely guy, Jack May. I'd, I'd worked at Spalding when I was at university. So I tee off with a hot dot, change to a tightless on the second tee, play with the tightless round of the ninth, and I'm three under. And I see Jack's on the back of the ninth. He's going to watch me tee off the tenth. I said, okay, shit, give me the hot dot back. <laughs> so I played the tenth hole with a hot dot, <laughs> hit it over the green, chipped it back, got up and down. Changed to a tightness on the eleventh team, played in with it. So that's how kind of crazy the game was. I mean, how, you know, imagine that. So, um, which is what you know. Since then, they figured out how to make a tightness do what a hot tot used to do, which was not cut and go through the wind, uh, but spin. Spin on the short ones, not yeah, on the long ones. Yeah. So, um, and I was. You and you always get. I think when you're winning a tournament, you often get. The shot you most detest or most don't want to have near the end somewhere. 
and I won a tournament and lost a tournament. I won the Heineken in Adelaide in South in Perth. Perth. Had a dodgy tee shot off the don't go in the water tee shot off seventeen. I had a four iron in. Long shot, hard shot. Playing with Wayne Smith, I was a shot ahead of him. I hit it to about four feet. Great shot. Best shot I've hit probably. One of the bit and I've and I had a four footer a hard right to left breaker. And I knew I had no chance. I was just <laughs> No chance. I'm like, I'm, this is a fluke if I hold this. So it's just a putt I hated and I always hated. And then Craig goes, ooh, and I missed. I said to my kid, I was really just trying to two-putt it. <laughs> and then I had two great shots in the last year in the water. I won by three, but in the end. But And then a year later, I had the same putt in the New Zealand Open against Lucas Parsons. I had a four-footer across the hill, at hard right to left breaker, and I missed it. Lost by a shot. You know, so you just... Get this, and I was. It was just a. I was never a great putter, and all, all the faults in my putting stroke were exposed by an under pressure, short right to left putt, and I missed it all the time. I always missed it. And is that compounded by the mindset that as you stand over it, knowing that you can't hold it? Well, you still think you can hold it. You do, you, right? You're hoping you're, you're hoping you're going to fluke it in. So you know what Doug Sanders felt. You know, you, you know, standing over that putt to win the Open, you know, he's thinking. Phew. <laughs> That's the last thing I need to be doing is trying to get this thing in, you know. Because they're the shoulds, aren't they? Everybody else looks and, and it's a should. Well, you should make easy. that. Yeah, you should they're make easy. that. Yeah. You should. Yeah. And the closer it is to should, the yeah. worse it is to be the person with the snake in their hands trying to. Yeah. You know, if you're a caddy, when I caddy now, I look at those. Well, he's, she'll, she'll make that. He'll make that. You know, you're already walking to the next Why did you miss that? You know, Sue missed a putt. I remember she made a putt in Hawaii. She was playing well the first round and she four-putted the eighth hole which was our 17th hit, hit a good shot hit the tier and went back down the tier putted up the tier four feet short knocked it four feet past missed it four putt double and she got in the last hole and she two good tart hole and you don't want to finish double bogey bogey it was a hard hole she had two great shots putted it hit, knocked it 30 foot past him putted it down four feet across the hill right to left and she made it and her mum, who was watching, had no idea how good a putt was. That was a great putt there. She said, yeah, thanks. Her mum had no clue because she doesn't play golf. No, no idea. That's right. She was just kind of mad at her that she'd four-putted. You know, you four-putted, you know. And it's like, do you realise how good a putt you just made there? Yeah. She just missed two of those. Exactly. She's got another one. And she hit a great putt. Right. It wasn't like a jabby trickle. It was just wham, you know. So that that's so it's easy. But it's easy when you're watching. When, only when you've played, you know how hard a putt that was. Yeah. It's what always strikes me about people who watch golf on TV who don't play it. Yeah. A couple of things happen. First, the television only ever shows blokes who are playing great because yeah. they're at the leaderboard. So that makes the game look easy. But yeah. you, you see somebody like Spieth or Tiger or with that three-footer left to right down the hill on the 18th at Augusta for the yeah. win, and the non-golfer just assumes they go make yeah. coffee. Scott Hope, yeah. How'd you miss that? How could you miss that? Yeah. Well, any golfer who's actually stood yeah. over any part of importance on a yeah. fast green with a yeah. – to win the Masters, it's like, like this. Yeah. <laughs> but golfers are thinking, how'd you how'd you draw the putter back? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> how did you get started? Yeah. Why does it mess so much with our minds? Because of course, there's no actual consequences in golf, aren't there? I'm always fascinated by that Rotella notion that if you put the the six foot long lump of four by two on the ground and you ask fifty people to walk across it, nobody ever slips. Mm. And if you put it ten feet in the air without yeah, a net, yeah. forty nine people will fall off it. Why? Well, it's the, you know, the Thing is, you get to Augusta, they anticipate. Not that I've played there, but or any tournament, it's the anticipation of the week. 
you're there on Monday and you're playing practice rounds, you're going to dinner every night and you're thinking about the tournament and you're going through the pressure of the first round and then making the cut and, you know, the third round. And, you know, it's not just a four-foot putt. It's a culmination of a sometimes a life, a dream of a lifetime, certainly of a whole week. And it comes down to, you know, it's a smelly little downhill four-footer right to left. You know, it's not just, you know, sure, if you walk out there, it's, you know, it's a four-footer right to left, it's, it, you know, but it's a... It's more it's like the, the consequences full- and the dream. Of, yeah. You know, for Scott Hogue or Doug Sanders, the same as the standover putts that were going to change their lives. No matter what the outcome. Yeah. And did for both. Yeah. Change their lives. Yeah, it's not easy. No. You know. It's more like it's the full like, stop at the end of the book, isn't it, than- Yeah. I guess it's <laughs> like people who detest public speaking. You know, they'll do anything to avoid standing up in front of a microphone and speaking. In front. I've done it a lot, so you get years used to it, but- People who hate, I mean, I hate dancing. I just detest it. The last thing I want to do is go up on a dance floor. I just do anything not to do it. Well, we've seen your performance on the group yeah, there at New South Wales. That's Life. right. So, so you're an ungainly yeah. type when you get so, moving so, weights. So, you know, it's just <laughs> not a, yeah, it's just a, it's, it's hard. They're hard. Golf's hard. Yeah. We forget that sometimes, don't we? It is hard. It's easier than it used to be, but it's still hard. If I could have thought as a player like I do as a caddy, I'd have been a much better player. Mm-hmm. Is you it know, possible, though? Yeah, I heard a play. I came for Blake the other day, Blake Collier at the Vic Open. Mm-hmm. First hole, he's playing well. First hole, third round. What was it, 10th at 13th beach? Easy hole. It's a drive and a pitch. Snipes it in the water. Retees it, hits it up, pitches it on three putts, triple. You know, it's a kind of a shock. He was playing well in the tournament. I'm like, okay, we got 70 holes to get this back. And I told him the ben, the ben Hogan story about Hogan made triple it somewhere in. On the first hole somewhere, I said, he said, turned to his playing partner and said, that's why they make 18 holes. And he ground out. It was a windy day and he shot par. In the end, he played a good round. Mm-hmm. But as a, as a player, it's like, wow, am I going to shoot 80 today? And you, you get mad and you get, so let's go to this, go to the next hole and make a par. And, you know, we'll just we'll chip away at it. And he chipped away at it. And But you think much more sensibly and clearly as a caddy than you do as a player. Except but I don't think Jack Nicholas I think Nicholas thought as a caddy and thought, I don't ever do. I could never think as a player, the way I think as a caddy. So it begs the question, how important is the caddy? Well, not that important. Well, it depends if you think they're important or not. I mean, Peter Thompson, if you ask Thompson or Nicholas or or Hogan, they would say, well, they just carried the clubs. Mm -hmm. You know, players are more reliant on caddies now because they pay them so much money they feel like they probably should be more reliant on them. Do caddies do more? Are caddies different these days than they used to be? uh, Well, no, because 30 years ago, the players were asking caddies for advice. What do you think? And I always did that because I often had good caddies and, you know, I would always discuss shots with my caddy. Thompson never did. He never asked a caddy anything, really. So I like the idea of being really self-sufficient. I think yeah. that's a good thing. I think it's a good thing. And, and if, I, if I could have thought like a caddy as a player, I never would have asked a caddy anything because as a, as a caddy, I can caddy for these kids and go, What's well, a five-iron shot off the tree on the right? Knock it down a bit. You know, it's not a full five, but six is not enough. Just knock it down, turn it left, aim it there, and you know, I can I can think like a caddy, but I couldn't think like as a caddy when I was a when player. Because play. because you you, know, you might think, shit, I was in this hole last year and I snapped hooked <laughs> in the trees. Or, That's exactly right. You, know, you, you remember shots from yeah. You know, so the caddy doesn't know that. 
the highlight reel, the film reel. Yeah, the film. We all have, isn't it? Yeah. I've been here before. What did you say about Scott at the Master? I've seen this movie before. I remember talking to you about that. I've read this book and I've seen this That's right. I've seen this movie before. I know how it ends (laughs) and it's not the way that we wanted to. Of course, he proved you wrong, which was was fantastic. Playing's been a big part of your life, obviously, but it's not the one that we think about you for because you've had this second half of your career where course design, obviously, has been a, Mm. a big deal. But I feel like your public utterances, writings, your podcast appearances, those things are fast becoming an important part of yeah, maybe. I don't legacy. Know. Is that I don't the know. right Depends. word? I don't know how other people see what I say, mm. but, you know, I always thought Peter Thompson was a guy. He was my god in golf in Australia. I grew up reading his stuff and, and I disagreed with most of it until I was old enough and hopefully <laughs> got a bit smarter to realise that he was actually right. And I, he was always right and I was always wrong. So now that he's not around, I mean, do you pick up where you know you try and be the voice of? And I don't have the credit as a player, but you know, I'm sometimes I try and what would, what would he be saying about this? What would he think about the equipment debacle and the how far the ball goes? Well, I know what he thought about it. You know, he spoke about it. You know, what would his attitude be to all this? And and he and he shaped a lot of the way I think about golf. He he shaped the way I see the game because I. I recognised that he was incredibly intelligent and had thought about it a lot, and he understood it. And he understood how important the old course was and how play was important. And you know, why are we blindly following the Americans? You know, he was he was wrong about we needed to change the big ball because to, to produce great players, we needed to be playing with the same equipment. Did he not with. agree with that? He was completely against that. Right. Okay. And he was wrong on that, I think. But he was absolutely right on the principle of why are we blindly following the Americans. Why, we, why is the whole world falling into what they want? And he was absolutely right about that. Why do we blindly follow America into Afghanistan and Vietnam? You know, he, you know, he was right about that too. So, you know, blindly following America in, in anything is not a good thing. It's fine if you, you know, you think about what they're doing and you're on their side and, and, and it makes a logical case, but why did we go to Iraq? I mean, really? So why do we... Why, why are you forcing us to play with a ball that doesn't suit our conditions? It's too windy here. It's, it's a, you're playing with, with a ball where the fairways are longer and lusher. You changed the big ball in America because the small ball sat down too low in, in the longer, lusher fairways, and there was less wind. That was purely, it was purely convenience while they went to a bigger golf ball. And now you're forcing the whole world to change? Why are we blindly following America? So he was right on the principle, but he was wrong on you know, clearly the outcome. The generation of Seve and Norman, yeah. Nick Price, were clearly advantaged by being forced to play with the ball the best players in the world were using. And they, in turn, became the best players in the world because they did that. Maybe you can't foresee some of those things. Yeah. The law um, of unintended consequences. Yeah, all, all, all that sort of stuff. Mm. As you say, Thompson's a highly intelligent bloke, as are you, as are lots of others who are fascinated with this game. How does that happen? And do we think it's more important than it is? It's just a game, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Yeah, it's not important. It's a, and the problem is it gets mistaken for an industry and a business, so you get people caring much more about the business than the game of it. But, yeah, it's a game. It's a game for amateurs to play for fun. It's recreation. And the great thing about it is that you can play it all over the world on wildly different fields. You know, we are at the Renaissance Cup yesterday and Monday and Tuesday the national and there's the guy who makes shameless head covers the guy's the money guy behind Mac- mcdonald leather bag company there are all the guys who work for tom um you know there are just different people from all over the world just 
come and play golf for two days and it's like what a great way to spend two days and get people together who just love golf who just want to play together and you play cool nine hole matches and you know it's um so that's why golf's great that's what golf is and it doesn't you know none of those guys there care about technology or none of them have got the flashiest new drivers or you know some of those guys matt mollick is out there playing with hickory shafts <laughs> yes. and yes you know um, i went and played with angela moser yesterday and we went out on the moon of course with some old tour ballada hundreds and persimmon woods she'd never played with a ballada ball or a persimmon wood it was like well, how much fun is this <laughs> you know how'd she go she, she loved it she was yeah she's a good player yeah, okay. it was fantastic you know we would never meet you know i would never meet a girl who grew up in the same town as Bern langer mm-hmm. near munich and you know, she's working for Tom, shaping up stuff, and you know, got a great mind for designing. We would never have met her in any other world but golf. Would you ever meet mm-hmm. a girl who lived up in a little town near Munich? And when you realise that you all like the same things and laugh at the same things, and you know, you enjoy dinner together, and you are, you know, it's just it's a way to bring people together. And that's the most important thing about golf is it brings people together who would never otherwise meet each other or come together. Yeah. You know, if, if they played golf in Syria, the place wouldn't be a mess. Uh, maybe you've, you've said that more than once uh, as well. Do you ever find yourself, as I sometimes do, frothing at the mouth in some rabid Twitter debate about something and then it just strikes you, this is madness, it's just a game? And you get, I get so worked up about but it. It's just a, but someone needs to defend it because the yes. guys who don't care about the game, they care about the money and the business and their own gratification and they think their 25 yards is the most important thing in the world. And Really? You're going to give up golf because someone takes 20 yards off you, and that's you know, the board. That's not what the board debate's about anyway. The USJ and the RNA have said, if, if someone wants to invoke a local rule to use a rollback ball, then you can do that. And hopefully, they do it at the US Open and the British Open, and the Masters will do it, and the Australian Open will do it. If no one else does it, that's fine. Okay, you don't do it, but if you want to play the British Open, then you don't have to play. But if you want to play, here's what you're going to play with. Because we think the seventh St Andrews should be the tee should be in bounds, not out of bounds. And the tee on the ninth hole should be on the old course, not on the new course. And we think that we don't think there should be six drivable par fours at St Andrews in the Open next year. And we think the, the you know the road hole was better when it was a drive and a three iron off off the proper tee. You know, so that's the. Yeah. But people don't care about that Isn't because they're, they're better athletes. I mean, really. Well, there's no doubt. There, there might be no – sure across athletic. the board, they're more athletic. And, and I think but, the USJ acknowledges that. Yeah, sure. My point is I don't care what they are. No. The ball goes too far. I don't care why it's going too far. It goes too far. Now, that really – is that not ultimately about where you stand on whether – what's the most important thing in the game? Is it the player, whatever the, whoever that group of players might be, professionals, or is it the golf courses? And Over time, I've come down on the side of the golf courses are what makes golf unique. Courses are by far the most important. If they roll the ball back now and and no one figures out a way to make it go further, which they always do, in 100 years' time, no one will know the ball went as far as it does now. The ball will go, you know, like Mackenzie said, distance is always relative. Mm -hmm. So if you're the longest hitter, when Jeff and I played, Ogilvy and I played at King Garrick, the Hickory Shaft course near St Andrews at 2010, just before the 2010 Open. They had 1890 specification balls. And I could hit it 160 yards and he could hit it 200 yards. He bombed it 200 yards. And his, after about six holes, he said, how much more fun is it walking 200 yards to play your next shot than walking 300? That makes perfect sense to me. So that as the ball's gone further, the courses have got longer and longer. And the stupid thing about Shambly and his debate is, you know, do we want to go back and drive Model T forwards is when we went to steel shafts and better golf balls, we obsoleted every 
6,000, sub 6,000 yard course. Well, they're all obsolete in the face. And Kink Sneath by 1932 was 6,800 yards. That was the new standard. And that was a, you know, 7,000 yards was a pretty good standard from, you know, steel shafts post depression until Pro V, until 2000, really, you know, the late 90s. It was, the balance was pretty good. Then we get a graphite shaft, 45 inch graphite shaft, a frying pan head with titanium, a bullet goes forever and it'll spin but goes through the wind. And all of a sudden, it's 7,500 yards or 800 yards is what you need to have. And that doesn't make any sense to me. It's ridiculous. But the, but the courses are clearly, you know, and it compl- so, so what we're going to do is what we did when we went from Hickory to Steel was obsolete Swinley Forest and all, all, all those short, you know, 6,200 yards, Woking and Sangdale, they all became obsolete in the, in the face of, Really strong. Not saying that wasn't obsolete, but you know Jones's thirty-two shots and thirty-two putts, sixty-six at Sandal was seen as a historic round. I mean, sixty-six is par for now for Tiger Woods at Sandal. So we're in danger of obsoleting again a whole new lot of courses with a lot less land resource no to land call land. on. Yeah, Kingston's gone back to the first tee. <coughs> the first tee is literally up against the clubhouse window. Now, there is no, you know, we, we, we worked there for 25 years. There is no, 20 years, there is no room to go there anymore. You know, so it's just, what do you do? How do you, how do you keep the test, how do you keep the test re- relevant? And how do you respect what Mackenzie did and Tillinghast and Colt and all those great, how do, you, how do you respect what they did and how they wanted their courses to play? And you can't tell me, no matter what argument you put, they wanted the first at Kingsnaith to be a driver in a nine-on or a driver in a way. It was a par five. You know, when... Thomas Peters stands there and drives Nicholas Colsarts in the foursomes at the World Cup 90 metres off the green, off a tee that Mackenzie hadn't, didn't build. We built the tee 20 hours behind the real tee. Is that what he wanted? Is that how little respect we've got for Mackenzie and those guys who left us the best courses in the world until this generation? And you go and talk to Tom Doak or Bill Corr or Gil Hans or the guys who are leaving the great course of this generation, ask them what they think about the ball and how far it goes. I mean, Tom's attitude is, why are we even to care about these guys? We kind of need to. Why bother about pro golf? Which, which is actually not a bad point of view. It, that's true, but it, it does play an important role, doesn't yeah, it? it? Does. Your reverence for Peter Thompson is part of the reason why you got hooked on golf yeah. and became a player and did all yeah. those other things. So we yeah. can't dismiss professional yeah. golf. And, and a, the reality was these courses were built. They were, they were in Melbourne. For, they were built for – they were great members' courses, but they were built to hold important championships. They were built to hold the Australian Amateur, the Australian Open, the Vic Amateur. Now, they were meant to test – Championship play. They weren't, you know, if they wanted them to test members, they'd have built them. Kingston's wouldn't have been six thousand eight hundred yards. It'd have been six thousand two hundred yards, and it would still be six thousand two hundred yards because for because for eighty percent of the members, that's how long it should be. If professional golf is ultimately ultimately just entertainment, and I think most of us accept that in reality that's what it is, it, is it less entertaining now? I've probably teed that up. It's a legitimate question, isn't it? Yeah. Is it a less entertaining spectacle with a ball that goes ever further than it was, let's go to the the 80s and 90s, we had the tail end of Nicholas, the start of Norman, the, the, the and Norman's it, Seve and Lyle and well, watching, the one you're familiar with. We watched Tiger Woods at Royal Melbourne. That's entertainment. That, that's as good as anything anyone's it's, ever seen. It was a privilege, wasn't so it? You can't say it's not as entertaining. You watch Tiger Woods play golf, it's amazing. It's incredible. But... Watching Greg or Seve hit a blade one iron as, over a skyscraper, which Tiger, I watched Tiger do that at Bethpage with Huggy at 2002 on the 13th hole. Um, 
it's more entertaining when you know they're doing it with a club that's really hard to do it with and that most guys on the tour can't do that. They can't hit that shot. You know, that shot Tiger hit in 2002, they can't hit that shot. I played with Greg and Seve at Huntingdale in 1983 and I hit it down the sixth fairway and hit a three-on up the fairway and a wedge on the green. They hit it over the corner and they both hit these three on, two or three-ons on the sixth. Well, no one hit the sixth green then. At these two ones, these towering two ones up on the middle, it was like, my God, they were unbelievable shots. You know, that was entertaining because they, they were hitting shots that anyone who watched that said, there's Mike Clayton, he can't do that, but they can. That's why they're better. But give everyone a ball that goes further in a hybrid. Mm. I don't, you know, if someone hit exactly the same shot with a hybrid, I don't get, that's done, done, done impress me at all. It's the same shot, but I know how much easier it is to do with that thing than it is with that thing. You know, and watching Seve with a 56 degree sand iron do magic was way more impressive than watching Phil Mickelson do it with a 64-degree sandwich. Which is... Lonard shot 63 at first round of the Open at Metro in 1997, and he hit some unbelievable bunker shots. And Norman walked up to his bag the next week and pulled his sand on out of his bag. Norman was playing with him Mm -hmm. and put it down. He looked, put it back and sniffed. He said, I thought you were a good bunker player. Oh. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. Yeah, I thought you were a good bunker, and I thought you were a good bunker player. So he was using a sixty-degree wedge. Sixty-four. Sixty-four. Yeah, sixty-four right. degree sand on. Uh huh. Well, that's not fair. That's not a fair fight if you're doing that. <laughs> yeah, but um, so yeah, it's always been entertaining. But I thought it was more entertaining when players were using equipment that was more difficult to use. Does that rely on the golfer having more knowledge of? how impressive what they're watching is. We talked about the non-golfer looking at the three-foot putt at Augusta and they're just three-foot putts. They're easy going to yeah. make a coffee. Is it- so, so does Nicholas's or Norman's or Ian Wisdom's or Seve's great 280-yard drive, is that as impressive as Dustin Johnson's or Rory's 330-yard drive? problem is you can't even see Rory's drive. You can't see the ball go that far. I, you, you miss the first 100 yards, don't you, literally? No, you know, I missed the end of it. I was watching, and I don't think it's my eyes, but because I can see my ball land, but I was playing for Blake <laughs> Collier at the big open. He drives it. I, I couldn't see them land in the end. They go so far, so I, I lost the I, I lost the end of that. It was on the it was on this line. Yeah, but we'll just have to keep walking until we come so, across it. So you know, it's impressive. But where are that? You know, you've seen that the clubs Arnold Palmer hit that mm-hmm. round at Champions in 1969, where he averaged a four iron shot. There was one wedge, a couple of seven irons. It was mostly three, four, and five irons. A couple of two irons. That's imp- that would be um, the most entertaining round of golf you could possibly watch. If any round of golf could come back and be reincarnated, it's Arnold Palmer playing that round. Arnold Palmer playing a US Open on a 7,200-yard course, hitting two, three, and four irons into the greens and playing a great round of golf. And that's, is, it, you know, is that more entertaining than watching Dustin Johnson and Roy hit nine irons and wedges? Well, it is to me. Surely, surely no one would argue watching Rory hit Bomb drives and eight irons is more entertaining than watching Arnold Palmer, who we're all in awe of when he drove the ball. I mean, he smashed it. He ground shook when he hit it. Mm. You know, which is not to say Rory's not entertaining. No, but if you were going to put yeah. put them against each other, I'd love to see Rory you, hit a yeah, one iron. I would. I, I, I want to see Rory McIlroy play a round of golf hitting those clubs Palmer hit. That would be the ultimate. In how cool would that be? But the problem is the courses. There isn't a course where you can do that. The course is going to be nine thousand yards long. Problem's not Rory. Rory could do it. Yeah, Rory could. Rory <laughs> would be better. Rory would win more majors and be better because he's the best line yeah. player. So, if you're a Rory, you would be you'd be pushing I mean, for the. The problem is they're owned. They can't say too much because they're owned by the manufacturers. You know, shut up. Don't talk about this stuff. We're paying you to be quiet. That's passing, though, isn't it? We see a lot of players these days not contracted. 
Yeah. Not a lot. There's a few. But, but you don't, don't see have. anyone who's working for Titleist coming out and saying something about the ball. Pretty rare. Yeah. Um, so who's Roy? Is Roy Tatum, at Nike play? Well, no, Taylor, mate. Taylor, mate. Well, he's not saying too much. He's sort of, you know, like, you know. But he, he, he did, his comment yeah. on the, the rollback report was, yeah, anything that makes the footprint of professional golf smaller. Because yeah. this is the unseen. All the stuff we've talked about is the internal debate mm. in golf, isn't it? There's mm. an external element to this in that golf doesn't sit on some island somewhere where it's just got access to whatever resources it wants. Yeah. We're part of a broader yeah. planet. And there are people who don't play golf who are going to have a say about golf's use of land. Yeah, and water and. Yeah. And golf tells its environmental story badly. I mean, Terribly. In Melbourne, there is, you could argue there's no, there, is, there is no more important thing in Melbourne for protecting indigenous vegetation, which is the most important vegetation in any city. And Melbourne blew it up and became a European city than an Australian native city with no respect for the, what was actually growing here before we got here. The only places that still respect that are the golf courses. Royal Melbourne's the only... And Victoria and Peninsula are the only havens, and Kingston Heath were the only havens for the little in, in, the indigenous heathland plants that grew there before the golf was here, before Captain Cook and that mob, you know, before we all came here mm-hmm. and decided this is a pretty ugly, scrubby place. Let's clean it up. Let's bring rabbits in and let's, you know, plant cypress trees and garden shrubs and, you know, oak trees and, you know, let's blow out all this heathland because, you know, and build houses and schools and, you know, build a city on it. The golf course is the only things that save that, and it's and it's and it's a core of people inside those clubs who are saving that because there are lots of people. You know, if I go and cut down a mahogany gum, which is a miserable tree that should never have been planted on a golf course because it doesn't come from here, the, the members or half the membership will go crazy. If you went and mowed out all the indigenous heathland plants that are less than six inches high, Victoria or Royal Melbourne, then most of the members wouldn't care less. In fact, half of them would be happy about it because they wouldn't top their ball into it. So golf sells its environmental credentials really badly. Golf sells itself badly, doesn't it? Don't you think? Well, and, from and, top to and, bottom, it allows itself to be demonised by people who don't understand it, who hate it. Because look at all the water you're using. And golf is does suffer from the green is good too much. We use too much water, and we should let courses go brown and burn off. And you know, Hoylake was great, yet the overwhelming consensus of Hoylake in 2006 was, God, the course looked terrible. So it was the only tournament I'd ever been to where no one, not one person complained about the golf course. Everyone thought it was amazing because it's beautifully hit off. It just was brown. Mm-hmm. It rained three weeks later and went green again. So and we get too obsessed with condition. We spend too much money on carpet-like fairways. The fairways are like carpet. I mean, people say the fairways are like carpet as if that's a good thing. That's a terrible thing for golf because it just costs money. But golfers demand it, don't they? We've got a generation. Well, golfers judge a course on, the, on, the condition. on that, you know, where, you know, that's – you know, people tell me Bumbergle's in bad condition. I was, you know, I wasn't in very good condition. How do you say that one? It's clearly the best condition course in the country. Bumbergle and Kate Wickham and Lost Farm are clearly the best condition golf course in the country because they're the only courses using proper grass for golf. They're the only courses using fescue. Mm-hmm. They're the only places lucky enough to be in places that climate allows them to grow that stuff. But the next best condition course is a 13th Beach Beach course and the Mooner course at the National because they oversowed fescue into the cooch grass. And fescue is the perfect grass for golf. So, you know, we played the Ghana course and then the Mooner course yesterday. And the Mooner course, Bruce Grant oversowed those fairways with fescue in 2004. They were terrible. They were cooch grass, they were dreadful. It was hopeless. In the winter, they were unplayable almost. They were so bad. 
and they're, they're a mixture of Cooch, Fescue and Poe, and they're beautiful. They're beautiful. They hit off. They look great. They play fantastically well. But they're not carpets. You know, Metro's pharaohs are carpets, and every lie I've had there for since they changed those pharaohs over in the, before the 1993 Open, how long ago was that? 30 years ago, nearly? Mm-hmm. Every lie's literally been exactly the same, and 99.9% of people say, that's a great thing. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, why is that a good thing? Was that what golf was supposed to be like? I mean, Mackenzie wrote about, you should have the occasional bad lie to see you can do something different. Who, who's the better player? There's a bad lie. See what you can do out of that. And it costs, so it costs money, and I don't think it's a great thing. thing any, I mean, it's, it's not like it's a bad thing, but is that what golf was supposed to be? Was every lie was supposed to be exactly the same? It's like everything, isn't it? If you don't know what the alternative is and you're happy with the status quo, how would you know that it's more interesting to have a series of lies that are different and change? Yeah, and you go to you go to Bamboogle or you play the Moona course the National. Sometimes at the Moona course, you've, sometimes you're playing off power, sometimes you're playing off fescue, sometimes it's a mix of bent and the, the cooch and the fescue. It's not that much different, but it's just subtly different. And the shots out of the power feel just a little different than the shots off the fescue. And the fescue always feels better because that's, that's the perfect surface to, to hit off. The club ground ball contact is unmatched off fescue. That's why Bamboogle is the best conditioned course because there's no other course feels the same. When you, no, no other place does the shot feel the same and as good off that turf than at Bamboogle. Is that only true for players of your ability, your level? I wonder. I don't, no, I don't think so. I don't think so. I mean, you've got to know what a proper shot feels like, but at some point everyone's hit a proper shot. I wonder if it, it's less, if they do it less often, so a 20 marker goes to Bamboogle really. At some point, surely they must kind of crunch the ground and go, well, that felt different. You know, it mm. felt different. Mm. I wonder about and the that. shots at Bamboogle feel different to the shots I hit at Metro. They feel completely different. Not completely, but they feel different. And there's just a... You know, Sam Steed said it was, it was like the sound of a Rolls-Royce door closing. You know? <laughs> yeah. yeah. A properly shot was, yeah. you know. Haven't VW tried that? It's the thunk of the door. The that was their advertising the campaign. Yeah, they tried that, did they? For a while, wasn't it? Up yeah. there? Within golf, we have this bizarre push for the homogenization, it feels. And I don't understand why in golf. I wonder whether you've got any thoughts, you know, that a, that a course has to be four par fives oh, and four yeah. par threes and par 72. Yeah. Where do you think... What's the mindset that drives that? Is Because it, it's the no, same it, mindset that what, wants the perfect lie shot after shot, isn't it? What's well, the ignorance? You can only put the reverence for a pass in down to ignorance and not knowing that more than half of the top 100 courses in the world aren't pass in Why do you want to pass in two when the best course in the world is not pass in two? And Muirfield's not pass in two and Marion's not pass in two. And, you know, why would you want to have a just for the sake of it? I mean, why is Royal Melbourne's a pass 70 in reality? It's certainly a pass 71. No, it's, it's pass 70. 12 and 15 are clearly just par fours now. Pass, they, pass 68 for they just haven't the President's changed Cup the number on the scorecard yet. Mm. But, you know, why does that, you know, Swindley Forest is par 68. I mean, it's one of the best courses in the world. Why does, and someone said the other day, we were talking something about a course the other day. I said, well, it wouldn't be a pass 72. I said, well, yeah, so what? What's that got to do with, it's the same golf course. You know, is Victoria a different golf course because they renamed the eighth hole a par four? It's still exactly, it's exactly the same golf course. What do, you, what do you care what's written on the scorecard? So the, and worse is the content of what's fair, fairness, what fairness is. Everything's got to be fair. When you go to North Berwick or St Andrews or any of the world's great courses, they're not fair. They're not supposed to be fair. In fact, dealing with the, un, dealing with the unfairness of it was the, that was the mental challenge of the game was dealing with the unfairness of it, the blind shot and, you know, bunkers. Not, the thing that drives me crazy is 
people who think bunkers should be consistent when one it's an impossibility and two your clubs waste fortunes trying to achieve it when it's when it's impossible to achieve anyway and it gives it gives every member a chance to bitch about their bunkers because every member at every club the the worst bunkers in the world are the bunkers at their own course when you know the if i've heard it once i've heard it a hundred the bunkers are like concrete I did it at Royal Queensland the other day. Okay, let's go out to the bunker with the back of the green. Which someone else, someone who wasn't around that table, told me the bunker, the the, 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 the bunker by the eighteenth green is like concrete. I was with these three other guys having this discussion. I said, let's go to the let's go to the bunker by the eighteenth green and let's go and see if it's like concrete. So Lucas, Michelle, and I walked out. We grabbed Lucas's sand iron, chucked some balls in there, hit him out. We fluked these shots to about <laughs> two feet. So made made our argument look even better. Said, was this like concrete? Oh, the bunkers aren't normally like this. When you know, it's only because the Australian amateurs here. Well, was that my fault? No. You know, and I know it's not true because I go to more courses than anyone in Australia, probably. I probably play more courses than anyone in a year around Australia. Like everyone I go to, the bunkers are fine. I don't have a problem with them. And sure, I know how to play a bunker shot, but that's the problem. You know, anyone with a bad grip mm-hmm. can occasionally hit a good shot off a tee and can occasionally hit a good shot off – they can fluke a good shot off a fairway. They can never hit a good bunker shot because they can never – with a bad grip, you take the loft off the face. Your first move back is you take the loft off the face. You've got to put the loft back on the face. And you can time that if hitting the ball off a tee or off a fairway sometimes, you can time that. But out of a bunker, you've got to hit behind the ball. And you've got to use the bounce of the club. And you can't do that when it's with a bad grip. And- you've got to go hard at it and hit, hit, have the face open, have it hold it open, use the bounce and go under the ball. And you can't do it with a bad grip. So anyone with a bad grip, they're inevitably going to – and they can't blame a bad – if you've got a Metro or any other course now, you can't blame your bad shot because you've got a bad line on the fairway. <laughs> it's just perfect. You know, when I was a kid growing up at Easton, they, they, you could blame a bad shot on – was a shitty lie. Yeah. Because there were plenty of dodgy lies. But you can't you – can't, clearly you can't blame a shot off a, off a tee. But the only surface you can blame for your own inadequacy is a bunker. Sand's too wet, too dry, too hard, too soft, uphill, downhill, sidehill, plugged, whatever you want. There's 10 or 8 excuses you can use for your own failure to know how to play the shot. Yeah. Give it to Seve, you know That that was unplayable, mate. Seve, 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 Seve would flip that out to a foot every time. What are you talking about, unplayable? Mm. It's unplayable with that grip, you're right. <laughs> you know, it's unplayable with that technique. People don't want to hear that, do they? I want to hear that. I don't want to hear that you know. at all. Let's start to wrap it up. What's better about golf now than when you played on the tour? And what's worse about golf, if anything? It's better about golf. Um, that's a good question, what's better about golf? I don't think... Let me think about what's worse about golf. Wooden drivers are gone. The sound of a wooden driver. Made the um, game easier though, hasn't it? Surely that's a good thing. Made it easier for... No, I think it's made it... For a subset of players, it's made the game much harder. Strong 8 to 15 handicapped men who can get speed now but don't have any club face control, it's made the game miles harder except the ball sideways now. So Ian Andrew talks about it. I think it was Canadian golf architect. His biggest problem is... Solving safety for all of us. It's solving safety problems for balls to go miles further offline than they ever did. So for a subset of players, there's a big subset, they would score lower with hickory or persimmon because they wouldn't hit that massive wide shot four times. The problem is they hit four great shots. They hit four shots they could never hit with hickory or wood. They'd go 300 yards. They had four shots where they can't find the ball. The four great shots don't save them many. They might save them one or two. The four shots that go sideways cost them eight shots. They're making triples and doubles. So um, what's way better about golf? Now, the one thing that's way better about golf is architecture, way better. 
you know, we went through after the Mackenzie and his contemporaries stopped work. The, the, the depression stopped them more than death did, really. You know, there was no work when they were at their prime. And they died in the, you know, 30s, 40s. Trent Jones and Dick Wilson came along and Americanized golf, and it was, you know, there wasn't much work done outside of America. And, you know, Pete Dye came along and said, I saw what direction Trent Jones was going in and decided I would go in exactly the opposite direction, which is his way of saying, you know, I don't think what you're doing is that great for the game. He went and built Harbour Town. Is it or is it just a marketing ploy on Pete Dye's part? No, because he didn't say it when he was doing it. He just went and did different right. stuff. He didn't say it at the time. He just went off and did different stuff. And sure, he, you know, he marketed, he went to Scotland and found, saw the railroad tyres and he, you know, he did that, you know, he's a... That became his signature. But was his tri- motive altruistic about moving the game in a direction that he felt was better, or was his motive well, if you've, got to be, you've got to be different to get the work? Probably a bit of both. Yeah, I wonder. Interesting. But he trained Bill Corn, Tom Doak, and that mm-hmm. generation of you know. And so the game is in a great place now. There are great architects working now. I've built. It's been a whole bunch of great golf built since Sandhills, which was the most important course. If it wasn't for Sandhills, Bandon never would have gotten done. If it wasn't for Band and Bamboogle, never would have gotten The domino down. effect is Yeah, so Mike Kaiser and Dick Youngscap and Sandhills were incredibly important. And they, you know, they became patrons of Corn Crenshaw and Tom and David Kidd, and they've built great golf. So there have been an amazing list of line of great golf courses that have been built. And I think we've done some really good work in Australia. You know, we redid the lakes in Lake Carrop and Royal Queensland. We, we did some really good work here, I think. Mm-hmm. So golf architects in a much better place. You know, there are better wedges, there are better putters, there are you know, companies can match, mass produce quality clubs now, whereas they could never do that in the past. I mean, you saw the clubs that Stadinger were making for Nicholas and Trevino when they came out here. That was because Sandy Fakeney was on the grinding wheel making sets for those guys and making beautiful clubs. But you go and look at clubs that off the rack, they, they weren't very good compared to what they're making now. So clubs are much better. There are no caddies anymore. Golf carts, golf carts have taken over. They're horrible, I think. But they're great for people who couldn't. I played golf at Metro with a guy called Peter Hurst, lovely guy who's so bad now at golf, he's embarrassed to play with us, which drives me crazy because, Hurst, we don't care how bad you are. Just come play with us. But he has to play in a golf cart because he can't get around. So they're great for that. For a guy like him, it's brilliant. It keeps him playing golf. You know, so there's a, there's a and, you know, if you're in a hot, miserable day in the middle of Queensland somewhere, then maybe there are days when you want to get in a golf cart. But they're horrible, basically. They're horrible. What else is good for them? You know, McDonald leather bags are beautiful for golf. But golf bags, that PGF made the most beautiful bags in the 70s. If you, if you commission someone to make an, the ugliest golf bag you could possibly make, can I make the ugliest thing you could? They've nailed it right. <laughs> those those, those four, 14 club divider cart bag things with 100 pockets. And a fridge on the front. They are the, you, you, you know, those PGF bags were just beautiful bags. And they're just horrifically ugly now, golf bags. They're so bad. And covered in branding, which I know is branding. a favourite of you yours. Know, and PGF was, you know, plain, beautiful bags, beautiful quality. And they were, they were the cost of – they were – my first one of those was $108, which was, the, which was 108 golf balls, dollar ball. So the equivalent price would now be – $800, say. But I've got, you know, my leather bag now, which the McDonald bag guys made, it was 10 years old and it's still perfect. And it will, it'll last another 30 years. So you want to buy, and golf bags are disposable junk now. 
Choose. Like chooser. So do you want to buy disposable junk for 200 bucks that lasts three years and you throw out and get another one? Or do you want to go, go and buy a, be- buy a beautiful leather bag that's extortionately expensive? It's, you know, $2,000, whatever they are. But it's going to last you forever and it's beautiful and you're going to love it. Only when I got that leather bag did I understand women's handbags. Oh, okay. Now I, you know, I kind of get it. I don't know why you've got so many of them, <laughs> but I get why you love a beautiful handbag. And those leather bags last forever. So why are we buying disposable junk? Yeah. That's, I mean, Jones bags are great. There's a there's a place for a three hundred dollar Jones yeah. bag that they're they're great looking. I love them. I love people carrying their clubs, and they last three or four years. And you get another one. It's fine. There's a place for that. That's a more general shift, though, isn't it, society? Yeah. I mean, the disposable yeah, consumer disposable. society. It's yeah. what keeps most of us yeah. employed, yeah. is the truth. Yeah. If things didn't con- constantly break down and need yeah. to be replaced. And golf shoes are more comfortable. They're, they're lighter. They're probably better. But was there anything like a pair of Footjoy Classics? You know, Steel spikes. Steel spikes. And Christina Kim still wears the steel spikes. There were, there were grown men following her yeah. up the concrete path yeah. at 13th Beach yeah. just to hear the sound. The LPJ Tour is better. The women's Much tour is better. better. Women get... They're still not getting paid enough, but they get paid much better for what they do. They're, they're great at having been around a bunch of them. They're much better than the men at promoting the tour and mm-hmm. leaving, talking to journalists because they need to be better at it. Yeah. Men are so arrogant. They don't care. There's so much money going around. They've all got teams and managers who don't want them talking to the press because they might say the wrong thing. Or So the women are great at that. I mean, So Young came down here and gave half her prize money to the $70,000 to the bushfire appeal. What a gift to the game yeah. she is. Yeah. So women are lots of great. lots of blokes yeah. gave to the bushfire people. We're not yeah. saying otherwise. Yeah. There's but- a Korean who came down and gave half a, and they taxed her forty eight percent as well. So she'd walked away from that Vic Open with nothing, virtually. Yeah, I mean she can tax, she can get it. She back. had five dinners with you. But, yeah, but, so there was, you know, but was there an upside anywhere? It's hard to see. She, you know, <laughs> and Daniel has got to play nine holes with her at Metro, and uh-huh. you know, so um, and she play, went and did the charity day for the TF for kids mm-hmm. day at Peninsula and. She's just a good human yeah, being. Yeah, she's so amazing. She's you know. a genuinely good so, human being. So, you know, they're great at that stuff. Hmm. What's the future of the game? Is it at a nexus? It feels like it's a it's a big and important moment yeah, in we're the game. Lose, I think we're, you know, we'll lose clubs probably. There are probably too many clubs and, you know, whether you get the high-end clubs start charging more and cutting their memberships and, you know, do you lose the second-tier clubs in Melbourne, which would be first-tier clubs in Sydney, some, some of them? You know, the Spring Valley Spring Valley wouldn't be struggling on the North Shore of Sydney. Not at all. It'd be thirty thousand dollars to join and be full. Be revered. So how do you protect the game so that the causes you lose and build houses on are the causes that most deserve to be lost and have houses built on them? And you don't lose the courses like Spring Valley and Long Island that are tremendous courses that you don't ever want to see houses built on them. So that's the decision that governments and committees and are gonna to have to make. I mean, I mean I think losing Kingswood was a in a sense, a bad thing, but you know, it allowed Peninsula to be a much better and more viable club than it ever was. And Kingswood was, you know, the neighbours are complaining about losing the amenity of a golf course in that, but that it's a law of unintended consequences. They were, they were fair enough to complain about golf balls going in your backyard occasionally, but the law of the unintended consequence was they had to change that golf course so much that it went from being a really good course when Graham Grant was the superintendent there in 1977 when we played there a really good course that always had a future, to the 13th best course within 20 minutes of Royal Melbourne in a, in a diminishing market. It had no future. So, you know, if, you, if the neighbours had let that course go and put, and put up with the annoyance of lost balls or errant balls occasionally, if they'd, left it, if they'd let it go, that, that course would probably still be still there. Still be there. 
Uh, maybe not, but you know, it, it it was a tremendous golf course in the late seventies, and it wasn't by the time it closed down. So you know, that's one part of the future of it. What about public golf? Does golf itself do our authorities pay enough attention to it and its protection? Because without it, well, Sydney's golf closing public golf. Scotland just closed five six, public golf, golf or courses. Six in Glasgow, yeah. Yeah. Um, Whose job is it to to make the case that golf, golf, Australia's golf job. belongs? It's golf Australia's job. That's you know, what's the point of golf Australia? Run the Australian Open and protect golf and argue for golf, argue for its environment, and argue for its um, sustainability. Argue for, and argue for public golf. And you know, the first golf course I played at was a place called Bullion Public Campus. Turned into camp it was bullying public course. It was a caravan. It's a guy in a caravan, no clubhouse, because he was a council employee. Thirty cents for nine, forty cents for eighteen, and he knew we were going to go, going to go to the fifth and sneak back to the third and play an extra loop of you know. Thirty cents for nine, forty, and it was a really rudimentary golf course. I'm mean, able to look at it now. It was, you know, the first hole was just a tee and a green with no bunkers, par three, five iron shot. But it was where I, it was where I could play golf. Because I couldn't play at Easton when I wasn't a member because the members were playing. I'd play there at night, but it, during the day, got to go to Bulleen. So, yeah, there was a place for that stuff. And, and as much as you might put your nose up at the quality of the architecture, there's still a place for kids to play golf. I think there's a place for Himalayas putting greens. I mean, Elstonwick was a terrible public. In terms of, you know, it was a doke one because he wouldn't give it a zero because he, he, he gave zeros to courses that, <laughs> that, that damage the game, that are wasted yeah, yeah. sums of money and shouldn't yeah. have been built in the first place. Yeah. So it was a doke one. Mm-hmm. And fine if you want to close the golf course, but build a Himalayas putting green. Do something. You know, so that – and Himalayas putting greens, I, I don't like mini golf. I just think it's a stupid game, but it's not. Lots they, of they, should take the, they should take the word golf out of mini golf, yeah. to be honest with you. But if you build a Himalayas putting green, mm-hmm. anyone can hit the ball with a stick along the ground. Mm-hmm. If, you had a, if you had to build a massive Himalayas putting green at Elstermick, right in the middle of where the, a million people live within two miles of it, maybe not a million, but close, and you had a barrel of putters – a barrel full of golf balls, and anyone who wanted to go down there could grab a putter and grab a ball and smash the ball across a massive putting green where you don't have to get the ball in the air. You don't have to look like an idiot because you can't get the ball in the air. You just putt the ball on the ground. What an amazing way to get kids into golf, I think. You learn how to hold, learn how to hold a club. Mm-hmm. You know, here's how you hold it and just, just hit it and make it crazy. It's a place for that, I think. Instead, it's just fenced, isn't it? Isn't it just fenced? It's just a fenced weed paddock at the moment. Graffitiing the old pro shop and... I don't know what they're doing with it. You know, they're growing trees on it, maybe, but which is fine. You can grow, say it was fifty acres. We'll grow trees on forty acres of it, and put put a Himalayas putting green on five acres of it, and put a bowling green or a tennis walking board, trails, whatever, whatever you do, whatever you want. I don't care what you do with it, but have some golf there. But golf doesn't have to be traditional golf. No, it can be Himalayas putting green. Yep, pitch and part. There's there's all sorts whatever. of options, isn't there? Yeah, lots of. Options. But make it so that it's not an intimidating game to play. Make it so. I remember Jeff and I opened Royal Canberra. And the last hole at Royal Canberra's got a tear in the green. We played this nine-hole exhibition match, and they were talking about that. And there was a little girl, and we'd, we'd putted up the tear, and it was a hard putt up the tear. And this little girl, had, I don't think she's ever hit a golf ball. I said, do you want to have a go? So she's kind of shied away a bit. And I said, no, come on. So I got behind her and kind of showed out all the club and kind of, and she's whacked this ball. It was like, wow, it was like a light went off in her head. And that was kind of fun. I can do that. But if you'd put her on her teens to hit the ball, she would have missed it. There's the green. She's embarrassed. She feels like an idiot. Yeah. But she she could hit the ball up the tier. Yeah. I mean, you could just be a putter. If, you, if the Himalayas putting green, if it was the Himalayas putting green, Elstonwick, you could just be a putter. 
build a cool coffee shop. Let's go to the coffee. Let's yeah. go have coffee. Go put the ball around. There's a hole. Let's go. Let's go to yeah. that. Because hmm. it taps that. into something fundamentally human, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, of course. And, and, um, I've forgotten Peter Thompson's son. How can I book yeah. Andrew yeah. told us on a podcast that it really just taps into yeah. something very primal. It's a stick ball target, yeah. and there's umpteen games being designed around it. Golf's the best of them. Yeah, that's exactly But the, right. the basic yeah. notion of yeah. try and whack this or yeah. throw something into a yeah. bin or yeah. just go to games that humans yeah. play, and it's yeah. kind of a it's a natural game for humans to play. You have a stick and a stone, and it's yeah. all we're doing really. It's just yeah. we've just Modified it. But, turned it into a big business. So, yeah, so public goals, <laughs> public goals are important. I mean, I keep arguing that public goals should be better, and there's a place for better architecture. Yes. The, the, problem the, and the problem with the model is that councils lease public courses out to an operator who's never going to spend any money on the architecture. So you've no interest because, in it. Because he closes the golf course down for a year. Yeah. He's got no money for a year. He can't charge any more when it opens up. So, just, so he just mows it. Yeah. Keeps it green, mows it. Last one. If we can find somebody to build Australia's Winter Park, whether it looks like Winter Park or something else. Yeah. So it's a little nine-hole short, good fun. Great fun. Rudimentary, inner-city golf. Attracts people. Yeah. There's other stuff yeah. to be done. If we can find someone with the courage to do it, will the domino effect kick in and everybody will want one? That would be my hope. Yeah, I, I think if someone builds a Himalayas punting green in a place where people live, I think people would, I think people would be amazed at how popular it would be because it's a game for it satisfies that human instinct of a stick and ball you don't have to be a golfer to do that will you put your money where your mouth is and design it for nicks well, we're gonna do what, well <laughs> we pretty much are we're gonna i'm gonna see richard sattler at bamboogle next weekend and we're gonna do one at bamboogle oh fabulous so i think they're doing a short course as well aren't they so which is another, Bill, bill's bill's another. guys are starting bill calls yep. guys are staying this week i think bill's down at the end of the month i'm gonna go to Bamboogle and we're going to sort out how we're going to do this Himalayas putting ground. I think when people see that, they'll go, wow, this is because no one's seen them. No, no one's beaten, you know, most people haven't seen the Himalayas putting ground at the old course. Or, and I played my first open there. I never didn't even know it was there. That's how stupid well, I was. Well. <laughs> you know, I teed off the thing and didn't know what it was. So um, I think if people see one and go, wow, this is pretty cool, let's do this. I think clubs will do them. I think they, I think they might take off. Because they don't cost anywhere near as much as a mini golf thing, which is no. a million bucks to build it. Yeah, that's right. It's all concrete you know. and. But, but you've got to maintain them. I mean, that's yeah. right. It's an ongoing. You have to cut it and water it and fertilize it. And, yeah, you know, like you said, a cool coffee shop, and you can't imagine that you could. You'd think you'd be able to cover the costs of yeah. mowing a big section of grass yeah. with. And you have free putters. Putters are free. Yeah, that's exactly right. You just have a barrel of putters, and you go around. You get. You got to Ross Baker's. Got to Ross Baker's place and just get all these old putters and chuck <laughs> them in a barrel. You can build seven and, Himalayas with what he's got. Yeah, and, and you start a titleist. Give us a thousand balls. We can chuck in a barrel. And balls are free, and don't steal them. And if you want to steal them, steal well, one. Don't steal four. Yeah. You know. Well, that might be the one use for range balls, mightn't it? Yeah. They putt just as good yeah, as anything. They're, they're, yeah. They're, yeah. They're not so much. Yeah. And that's so. and it's free. Yeah. You know, and just get kids going down there and and. Oh, walking their dog anyway. Anyway, everyone. Yeah. Well, that's what we're really talking about. There is making golf a part of the community, as opposed to golf being over there, which is how it exists in Australia. It's behind a fence. Which it's another is- suburb away. You got to get in your car and drive to it. In St Andrews, you walk through the town. You walk past the golf course. Yeah, so what's the, di- what's the, what's the, the golf difference course? between golf in Scotland and golf in Australia? There's one major difference: fences. Yep, we have fences. Tear down the fences. Everyone's worried about vandalism or behave. You know, and if someone, you know, just. Put a post and rail fence around. So if you want to drive your car, and yet, you know, if you want to vandalise Yarra, you can vandalise Yarra. You can sure. drive in the gate. Anyone can drive in and vandalise a golf course if they want to. You know, you can 
Yeah. Yeah. We're better than that, aren't we? You'd hope. Yeah. Don't think we've proved it yet. Been good to chat to you. Thanks, mate. Enjoyed it. Thank you. It was fun. Thank you. It was fun. Enjoyed it. Well, that's it for episode 17, and I hope that you enjoyed it even half as much as I did. As I said at the outset, I'm of the firm belief that generations of golfers in the future will talk about Mike and his contributions to golf. Even those who disagree with him, and we know there are many, are hard-pressed to question his passion, love, and enthusiasm for the game. Now, in a funny way, we're not straying too far from Mike Clayton on our next episode when we catch up with one of Clayton's dear friends and one of the most popular golfers of his generation, Zimbabwe's Tony Johnston. You know, everything I have is through golf. I met Karen, my wife, through golf. Uh, My career was uh, obviously golf. You know, my kids came because of Karen through golf. So, yeah, I mean, golf has been, uh, you know, it's been the the cornerstone of my whole life, really. That's next time on The Thing about golf.